This is an interesting week, isn't it? Anybody know what's coming up this week? In our American tradition, uh, it's, I think it's uh, an irony that our Lord has uh, brought us to this text of Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16 through 18. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing that as, as I prepare expository sermons, you know, the, one of the pleasures of planning out sermons is really that God is the one who directs all of the planning. It's not that I'm thinking ahead of, okay, I want to talk about this this week and I want to talk about that that week. It's God, when we, when we do expository teaching through the Bible, God speaks at the right time with every passage. Amen? Um, and what I love about following this Holy Spirit-ordered structure of Scripture is that this is God's way of speaking into our lives at an inspired time. In our Americanized tradition of celebrating gluttony, especially when we celebrate gluttony on the fourth week of November, I think you know, we're giving thanks for all that God has blessed us with and we give thanks by indulging ourselves with a lot of food. And we give thanks to God for indulging in family. And we even indulge in football. I think God... <laughs> Some of the ladies are going, no, please, please, no. Some of the men are going, yes, that's a time-honored right. <laughs> Thursday afternoon football, Thanksgiving, right? But I think in God's... Humor. I think he has ordained that we listen today from his son Jesus Christ as he instructs us on the discipline of fasting of all the weeks of the calendar year for this sermon to fall. And I didn't plan it this way. It was not an intent. It's the way God speaks through his word that this week of all weeks, the fourth week of thanks of, of November, the week of Thanksgiving, we are now looking at what Jesus is teaching us about fasting. Thank you, Lord. Amen? Thank you for the struggle. I love God's sense of humor. Fasting is an interesting thing. Let's take a look here at what Jesus is trying to teach us. This is a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount, and this passage on fasting follows directly after Jesus is teaching us on prayer. And we're going to see the connection here between these today. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Jesus Christ, who is teaching to his disciples and to the multitudes who are around him on the mountain, he comes now after teaching on prayer. He looks directly at them and says this, beginning in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Dear God, we pause at this reading of your word. As we listen to the words of your Son, Jesus Christ, as he teaches, not just at the time of of his life, but even now, 
Thousands of years later, we, we are listening to the same words and the same theme and the same meaning. And so, God, I pray that you would teach us today exactly what you need us to hear. This idea of fasting, this idea of purposefully limiting our self-indulgence, whether it be food, whether it be materialism, whether it be entertainment, whatever it is that consumes us and causes us to discard you, is that which is worthy of fasting from. And so, God, I pray right now that you would speak boldly in your word and cause us to hear, but, Lord, also that you would work in us as you wish to, wish to work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. All about you, but fasting is something that, okay, as I'm saying this, here's what I want to do. I'm going to close my eyes and cover my eyes as I say this so that no one comes back to me and accuses me of, of pointing directly to them. Some of us in this room may actually feel guilty because we really need to fast, but we don't. And we look at our waistlines, and it's obvious. We look at our lives, and it's obvious. Okay, now no one can accuse me of pointing them out. <laughs> Would you agree that Americans, Westerners, fasting is difficult? How many of us actually purposefully miss a meal? That's the answer I thought. Right? It's difficult. And in Matthew chapter 6, as Jesus is teaching us this, it's interesting that in this day and age, here's how we understand fasting. We don't look at fasting anymore as a spiritual exercise. Instead, fasting is a dieting craze. Right? It's a dieting craze for the health-conscious people today. You got any health people in here who do this? It's called intermittent fasting. Health gurus claim that when you follow a schedule of intermittent fasting, it's a craze right now. You're making a lot of money on intermittent fasting products to help you intermittent fast, right? Uh, what is intermittent fasting? It's using, and, and this is one of the more popular ones. There's different ways of doing it, but one of the more popular ways of fasting intermittently is by using apple cider vinegar, and then you alternate, alternate periods of voluntary food intake. In other words, you voluntarily skip meals for 12 hours or 18 hours. That's intermittent fasting. And in the meantime, you, one of the popular things is you drink apple cider vinegar. That's, you don't have to, but that's one of the things. Or you buy this product from this company for $20 a bottle and you drink that. See what I'm saying? Intermittent fasting has become a health craze. When we think of fasting today, many people look at it as a health conscious thing. And really, there's some, there is some health benefits to fasting. I'm not diminishing that. There are some health benefits to purging our system of the toxins of the food we eat. It's a good thing. But I think Jesus here is doing something different. We have to ask ourselves, and is Jesus before his time by teaching on the health benefits of fasting here. Is this what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 6? Is he before his time? Was he a health guru long before there were health gurus? I think there's something deeper here. Don't you agree? 
I think there's something deeper in this. What we're going to look at today. After all, Jesus practiced fasting himself. We saw this in Matthew chapter four, when he was tempted by the serpent or by the devil uh, in the wilderness. He fasted for forty days. He, but Jesus also expected his disciples to fast. Did you know that? He expected them to practice fasting. Now, when we look at uh, Matthew chapter nine, if you want to flip over there real quick. Uh, this is one of the times that Jesus got in trouble with the religious people, right? Matthew chapter 9, we won't read it all, but in verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Right? So there's the problem. Hey, we're fasting. The Pharisees fast. Why are your disciples not fasting, Jesus? And some people may take this one verse out of context and say Jesus does not expect us to fast. But let's read deeper. Verse 15, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Verse 15, you see that? Jesus is expecting that his church will fast after he goes back home to the Father. So what is Jesus, what is his response here to the charge that your disciples are not as holy as us? Here, we have to do this spiritual practice of fasting, but your disciples do not. What's going on there, Jesus? It's real simple. The disciples do not fast when the Lord is present. That's what Jesus is saying. While I am here, there is no reason for my disciples to fast. I am with them. They are with me. We are in communion together. But... He tells us in verse 15 that when after the resurrection and after the ascension, when he departs, he makes it real clear. When I'm, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. So in this, when, whenever Jesus is not present, we are expected to fast. Are we in a season of history where Jesus is not physically present? Yeah. If you came into this church and said, and Pastor, uh, I saw Jesus today, and oh, by the way, here he is. And you bring in this guy off the street and say, this is Jesus. He claims to be Jesus. We would all look at him and go, don't think so. Right? It'd be, we would be very skeptical. So the issue here on fasting is this. Jesus expects his disciples to fast. And that also means us. That means the church. I think in Scripture we have a very clear expectation of fasting. Now, some of us in here are going, oh, pastor, I'm starving already. You're looking at your watch. It's a little bit after 11. You're waiting to get to your lunch. Now, when I was growing up in, in, in Kingsport, Tennessee, at uh, uh, 11.45, church was over with at 12. If we, if the pastor wasn't done, we missed the line at the Piccadilly. Y'all ever been to a Piccadilly? It's a cafeteria restaurant that are very pop. They're not as popular as they used to be. Uh, there's still one left in the United States in Kingsport, Tennessee. It's still running. It's a wonderful place to eat. <laughs> but man, church had better be over so that we could go eat. We don't fast anymore, do we? Because it's difficult. So the placement of this teaching, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 6, I don't think that Matthew is making a mistake here. I don't think Jesus, in the order of his teaching, is making a mistake. There's a reason that the teaching on fasting is following the teaching on prayer. 
because the two go together. And I think that's where we miss it. Because if we force a fast upon ourselves, and we're going to look at this later, without any type of purpose, then we're just wasting God's time and wasting our time too. And we're going to be miserable. And we're going to be grumpy. We're going to be hangry. But if we understand biblically that fasting and prayer go hand in hand, they are spiritual disciplines that God expects of His people. Proper fasting will involve prayer. And the result of this is going to be a closer, more honed, more polished, godly life. Fasting, just like all the other spiritual disciplines, are a gift of God. God has given us spiritual disciplines of corporate worship, of prayer, of fasting, of service, of sacrifice. The spiritual disciplines of the faith, of reading God's Word and meditating on His Word, these are disciplines of the Christian life. Fasting is one of the top ones that God has given us as a gift. Amen? Some of y'all are staring and going, oh no, I have to fast now. It's a struggle. And let's think about this. Because practicing the spiritual gifts are ways of developing a godly lifestyle. Not that we manufacture our godliness, not that we manufacture our salvation, but it is a gift of God. These are tools that are gifted to us to help shape our godliness, our dependence upon the Lord. Now, we see a hint of the problems with ungodly fasting in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 6. What does Jesus say? And when you fast, and I want to highlight that, that that's, a, that's an imperative command. And when you fast, that's an expectation. Not if you fast, but when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. The King James Version, I like the way it says it, uh, and when you fast, do, uh, it talks about putting on a sad countenance. And that's the response that many of us have if we miss a meal, don't we? We miss our breakfast, we miss our dinner, we miss our lunch, we miss our Starbucks coffee. And we go around the rest of the day with such a sad, gloomy face that it's obvious that we're in pain because we've missed something. Right? What does Jesus say here? When you fast, do not look gloomy or do not put on a sad countenance like the hypocrites. That's a problem. Because when they disfigure their faces, when they look gloomy and sad and despondent, their fasting is really seen by others. That's their purpose. Because far too often, self-serving attempts for religiosity, for piety. The religious elites are trying to serve themselves and be holy themselves. It leads to a hypocritical facade putting on the face of the hypocrites. And Jesus is pointing this out pretty clearly. It's obvious that many of the religious elite in Jesus' day, they faked a spirit of gloom and agony in their desperate situation of fasting. Oh, I've sacrificed so much food for the Lord this week. I'm fasting. Aren't I holy? Right? 
It's like they're, they're walking around, look at me and my sacrifice for holiness. I've earned God's favor. That's what's going on. But Jesus states the obvious in the latter half of verse 16. He says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now that's very revealing, isn't it? As Jesus is teaching here in verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites or put on a sad countenance, because if you are doing that, you receive your reward. You have the attention of men. You have the attention of others. That's the only thing that you desire. That's the only thing that you're craving. So you will be rewarded with that. Attention from others. That's very clearly not what fasting is for, according to the words of Jesus. There's two big points in Scripture that 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 talks about um, this discipline of fasting. And Jesus is reflecting this here in this passage. Number one, when people do not live as God desires, they should be prepared that nothing will be accomplished by their fasting. So as we understand what Jesus is teaching here, fasting is not forbidden here. Fasting is actually expected here. But when you fast, if your attitude, if your purpose is outside of God's will, outside of God's desire then nothing will be accomplished for the effort. That right there kills any argument that fasting is something that manipulates God and and, and wins His favor. That's not what we're doing here. None of the spiritual disciplines, not even prayer, not even Bible reading, not even fasting, none of these practices of the faith are designed or expected to win God's favor. But there's a purpose here. The second thing is fasting is not for appearances. It does not make anyone pious or more holy, and it clearly does not earn points with God. The brownie point system, we're not doing that here. But whether we fast or not, the problem addressed here, I think, in Matthew 6, goes a lot deeper than merely limiting your food intake. I think what Jesus is pointing out here is it's a repeated theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. His theme is there is a heart problem in your religion. I want to teach you what the true kingdom of God is. There's a heart problem that he is addressing here. So the spiritual disciplines of the faith that God gives us as a gift are intended to guide us in our devotion to the Lord. It's an assistance to godly living. I want you to understand that the spiritual disciplines are a gift of God. They are assistance to our godly living. They don't replace the source of godliness and holiness. They are just gifts to help guide us. Because I don't know about you, but boy, I need all the help I can get, don't you? The Lord has saved me through the blood of His Son, but then what? I trust that, but boy, I fail every single day in my trust. I need a little help in pushing and depending on the Lord. And so these disciplines are a gift from our Father in heaven. Now, this spiritual, this, the spiritual gift of fasting is a discipline that has been integral to the Judeo-Christian tradition from the very beginning. You could say that fasting has been a part of the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition for millennia. 
And just because we are in the modern age of science and enlightenment doesn't mean that we have now reached a level of understanding beyond the ancients. No, I think we are missing a very important biblical point here that we are not too smart. We need to understand the truths of the Scripture as practiced by the patriarchs of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament, the saints of the early church, and the saints all the way since the beginning of the church. Fasting and prayer have gone hand in hand, and it has never gone out of style. Amen? From the Old Testament patriarchs to our modern-day theologians, Every one of them, when they write about this and think about these things, they all agree that self-indulgence of any form is the enemy of thankfulness. Ponder that this week as we gather with our family and friends, whether you're traveling or staying home. This is a week that we are going to be encouraged in our communities to be thankful. Self-indulgence is the biggest enemy to gratitude. That's the irony of the American Thanksgiving meal because <laughs> we gorge ourselves in the celebration. And we should be celebrating all that God has given us. There's absolutely nothing wrong with a feast. God gives us plenty of celebratory feasts in the Old Testament. Nothing wrong with that at all. But there are also seasons and times of fasting. But even in the feasts, There is caution not to be self-indulgent and gluttonous to the point that we forget where the source of this celebration comes from. Any form of self-indulgence, whatever it is, is the primary enemy of God's Spirit who inspires us and leads us in the ways of godliness because what we do when we are self-indulgent, we are replacing the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit with our own stomach our own desires, our own cravings. And our body dominates the spirit. That's a problem. This is why fasting is a discipline that retunes our attitudes and retunes our bodies and retunes our thoughts away from our cravings, whether they be physical cravings or other, to the only thing that is important, and that is the dependence upon God the Father. You remember the teaching on the whole, on the on the model prayer, the, the the Lord's prayer in the previous verses. The whole theme of the Lord's prayer is dependence upon God. And now Jesus, in verse sixteen of Matthew chapter six, goes directly into one of the hardest areas of our physical existence to hand over dependence to God, and that's our stomach. Anybody here get hunger pains by 9 o'clock in the morning? Even though you've probably had a good breakfast? (laughs) Anybody by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you're so weak-kneed, you can't even make it to the end of the day? i got to get my candy bar. Amen? What about denying ourselves on a regular basis for the purpose of depending on God to get us physically through, boy, wouldn't that be an amazing practice if we began to do that again? Now, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 5 what the fruits of the flesh are in contrast with the fruits of the Spirit. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. 
beginning in verse 16. Flip over there with me. Galatians chapter 5, the fruits of the Spirit passage. Beginning in verse 16, here's how Paul introduces this classic teaching of the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5 verse 16 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then he goes into the long list of the actually uh, the examples of the differences between the flesh and the spirit. What is what is he saying here? He points out openly in this text that the desires of the flesh are diametrically opposed to the desires of the spirit. Let's remember that the desires of the flesh are diametrically opposed to the desires of the spirit. And so fasting, I think, is perhaps the single strongest and most direct discipline of the faith to ward off the harm that our desires of the flesh bring into us. Ponder that. All of the fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of the flesh that are listed in Galatians chapter 5 are fair game for practicing fasting because the desires of the flesh go directly against the desires of the Spirit. Let's ponder that. But for some Christians, let's think about this, fasting for spiritual purposes is actually unthinkable. Because some of us in this room and some of you who are listening to this sermon may be saying, but pastor, fasting goes right into the areas of asceticism where people shave their heads or walk across a fire pit barefoot. Right? Y'all know those crazy people? walk across a fire pit barefoot. So they say, so they lump fasting and some of the other spiritual disciplines into that same crazy asceticism because when you bring harm to your body, the thinking is that you'll bring favor of God upon you. And so they lump fasting into that and we should avoid it because Paul does talk about avoiding asceticism. Asceticism is that word that we're talking about where you harm the flesh. You purposefully cause pain and suffering for the purpose of a divine experience. That's not what fasting is. Fasting is not an intentional suffering of the flesh in order to somehow magically bring God into the room. But it is a spiritual discipline that is tied directly to prayer. They're intertwined and it is a God-given gift to us and that's what we've got to understand. See, contemporary understanding of fasting is the result of the emphasis of materialism. And when I say materialism, I'm not talking just about Black Friday shopping that has already started three weeks before Black Friday. I'm talking about materialism from the perspective of scientific reasoning that the only thing that is real is that which is material. The atoms, the molecules the stars, and somehow they have this reasoning that all that is physical and material never had a beginning and always has been and has an eternal never 
beginning and never ending. It just always has been. And I'm scratching my head. If it's material and it's physical, it has to have a purpose and a cause and a beginning. But they argue it doesn't. It's crazy. That's what I'm talking about. This emphasis of materialism, the physical, over the spiritual. That's the modern time that we are in. The emphasis of the material or the physical over the spiritual. And so fasting is radically opposed to the flesh. And so this emphasis of materialism and the physical goes, pushes back against the spiritual aspect of fasting in our mainstream culture. So in other words, that leads to the idea that fasting is nothing more than a diet craze. Because the only thing you're worried about is the physical. Just fast for your physical body and we ignore the spiritual reality of fasting and prayer. So how many people do you know that fast on a regular basis? How many in this room fast regularly? Or at all? See the reaction? Even me. I'm, I'm bringing myself into this agree, into this confession. We don't fast regularly with our prayer life. And Jesus is calling us to do this, but he's calling us to do it in a a special and biblical way. Now, there are traditionally various forms of fasting in the scriptures. And Jesus, I think, is speaking about one particular type of fast in this in this passage of Matthew chapter 6. He's talking about a personal fast. But let me go through a quick list here of all the different fastings that are mentioned in scripture. There's a thing called a normal fast, where there is no food, but plenty of water. Because your body cannot exist more than three days without water. Just know that. If, I mean, if you imagine Jesus in the desert for 40 days fasting, I promise you he probably drank water during that time or his physical body would have probably died. Unless there was a supernatural intervention. And that could have also been a case. But we... A normal fast is no food but plenty of water. Drink plenty of water when you fast. That's not, you don't feel guilty by drinking water during a time of fasting. That's healthy for you. Physically healthy, but also spiritually it keeps you focused so that your brain doesn't go wandering. Now there's also an idea of the partial fast. And that's where we, we only eat limited food but we don't fully abstain from food altogether. We see this in Daniel chapter 1, where Daniel and his three friends ate only vegetables and drank fresh water for 10 days. That's a partial fast. In other words, they're saying, I'm only going to eat this. And it was smaller portions perhaps, but it was fresh vegetables and fresh water, not this other rich foods. And they were healthier. They had a glow about them, according to Daniel, right? Now, there's also this thing called the absolute fast. Now, that's avoidance of all food and water altogether. And generally, if you do an absolute fast, that's an extreme fast, but generally that won't last more than three days because of the water factor. No one is going to do an extreme fast of no food and no water for much longer than three days, if they can even last that long, okay? But now we do see this in in Scripture. uh, The book of Esther, chapter 4. Esther calls the Jewish people, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, she says in Esther chapter 4, verse 16. She makes it real specific. Do not eat or drink for three days, calling for their prayers. And then Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, remember? Uh, his conversion resulted in for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. 
Now, that was a reaction to his conversion, but at the same time, I think this was a spiritual God-ordained calling to fasting and prayer for those three days as Paul is trying to wrestle with what he just experienced. What a way to start a ministry. Amen? There's also this idea of a supernatural fast, and this is very unusual, but it's a special calling to fast uh, and uh, depending on God's supernatural intervention because the body cannot live over three days without water. And we see this where Moses met God on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, and he says in Deuteronomy chapter 9, I ate no bread or drank no water for 40 days. That would be an extreme supernatural calling and supernatural intervention. If you, if you think that God is calling you to that, please be very certain that God is calling you to that. <laughs> that would be very rare. But what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 6 is a private fast. It's the one that uh, more times than not, that's what we're going to be thinking about and dealing with. More times than not, we are called to fast in a way that is not noticed by others. That's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 6 verses 17 through 18. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who is in season secret will reward you. So there are more times than not, that's the type of fast that most people will will probably uh, do. It is a private fast between you and the Lord as He is calling you to pray about something special. It's not something to be... The Lord's called me to pray and I'm fasting this week. Will you pray for me during my fast? You ever heard people call for that? I have. I'm going, hmm. But now another thing that we see in Scripture regularly is a congregational fast. And these are more commonly found in the Old Testament uh, where, like in the book of Joel or in the book of Nehemiah, where the congregation fasts together. They're called as a community or as a nation to fast together. That's very uh, common as well. But these are generally a, a, a call for a nation or a community, to uh, a call to repentance or seeking God's forgiveness or seeking God's favor together as a community, as a nation. The only time that I personally have ever really focused on this type of a fast was in 1997, uh, back when there was a ministry movement called Promise Keepers. Y'all remember that back in the day? Some of you young folks weren't born yet. Uh, but there was, uh, it was several years of, of calling men to be men and be Christian godly men. And it, it culminated in 1997 with a million man march in Washington, D.C. I was there. I even have the poster on my wall. They sent us a nice poster afterwards of the aerial shot from the park service. And when you look back at that, and this is the sidetrack, that Million Man March of Promise Keepers in 1997, in contrast to one that happened just a few months later that claimed to be a Million Man March, was no comparison. The Million Man March that God called men together was amazing. And we, I went, I went up there on a bus with the church that I was a part of at the time in Johnson City, and it was a bus full of men going to God, the nation's capital to pray for our nation, and we fasted for three days before that. And, th- and let me tell you this, when we were on the National Mall, there were food vendors everywhere trying to sell us food. Were you there? Okay. There were food vendors everywhere in D.C. trying to sell us food and no one would buy anything. To where at the end of that day of prayer in Washington, D.C., they made an announcement from the stage. We had all of these lunch boxes, and none of you wanted them. 
we were done, the event was over, come get something to eat, it's free. We were on our knees on the nation's capital as a congregational fast, praying for the nation. That was an amazing time. Now, last thing, another type of fasting that we see is it's a personal fasting, but it's a personal fast on a regular basis. In other words, a type of fasting that is not just a one-time thing, but it's intentionally regular. Now, we see this in, in some of the Christian tradition. John Wesley is one that comes to mind. John Wesley would not ordain a man to the Methodist church ministry who did not regularly fast twice a week on Wednesday and Friday. He wouldn't do it. Now, the Pharisees in the New Testament were known to fast twice a week, but I think what Jesus is telling us here is, uh, I don't know if they really are or not, they're definitely hypocrites going on here. But there is a call even in Scripture to fasting on a regular basis. So the, the broader importance here, I think, for fasting should not be neglected. Let's think about this. As Jesus commands us in Matthew chapter 6, when you fast, underline that in your Bible, when you fast, fast is to have a purpose. I think that's what we see here. Fasting has a purpose. Fasting is not a random activity. And I think just like prayer is not a frivolous act either. So this is where prayer and fasting go hand in hand. When we pray, is there not a purpose for our prayer? Likewise, when we fast, the fasting should have a purpose. And it has to have a specific kind of purpose. It needs to be a godly purpose. If it does not have a godly purpose, then a fast is nothing more than a, a, a fad diet. And that's all it is. Without a purpose, fasting really can be miserable. Without a purpose, your fasting experience is a self-centered experience, and the only thing that you're going to gain from it is getting hangry and frustrated. When your blood sugar drops and your belly's empty, that's the only thing you're going to get if there's not a purpose to the fasting. Fasting to earn God's favor clearly is not a biblical purpose. So if your desire to fast is to get God's attention, that we don't see that necessarily in Scripture. Nor the only, thing, the only desire that we have of God's attention in a fast is perhaps repentance and forgiveness. <laughs> Forgive us, Lord. Or help me see your will. That's about it. Other than that, there is no desire of God's favor. We're made favorable and acceptable in God's sight only through what? The saving sacrifice of Jesus Christ Himself. Our work does not make us favorable and acceptable to God. So a fast or a prayer or any kind of spiritual discipline, if it is taken into a, a false purpose, then you're really replacing the saving work of Jesus Christ. And boy... We should be careful there. Amen? Jesus is pointing out very clearly here that the religious elite did not have a valid purpose for their fasting. And the only result was their reward of men seeing them. That's what they got. They merely desired to be seen as holy. Now this is in contrast to the Old Testament patriarchs who fasted during times of grief or at times of national repentance. They had a purpose. They were called to it. 
They fasted when they needed. I hear a clear directive from God before making important decisions. And if you want to take notes here, here's just a couple of places that you can see this. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, we see this. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 4 to 6. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So we see an example here of calling together for fasting and prayer for forgiveness and repentance. And then in Nehemiah chapter 1, actually also in Nehemiah chapter 9, there was a call to fasting and prayer. Fasting was never intended by God to be this magical button or a guarantee that would cause Him to respond in our demands. That's not what fasting is for. Fasting has never been shown in Scripture to be this on-off switch for God's presence. I want to show you one last example here, and we'll we'll close with this. Fasting does not always lead to the outcome that we hope and dream. Sometimes the the, the response to our fasting and prayer is sorrow. We look at King David who fasted and wept over his child, that son that was born to Bathsheba. When we see in 2 Samuel chapter 2, A great sin occurred, and David was confronted by the prophet Nathan, right? And David, when he sees this new baby, this newborn child dying, he goes into his chambers and he weeps and he fasts and he prays on behalf of the child. He desired that his prayer be directed to God the Father alone. And it was a secret place where he met God. And it was a place where God was there and he heard the heart of David. But what was the answer to his fasting and his prayer? The baby died. David's intentional fasting and prayer, lamenting and weeping before the Lord, resulted in God's answer the child will die. So, why say we see biblical evidence that fasting and prayer does not always lead to a joyous desired outcome. It could also lead to an act of repentance even in the midst of sorrow and grief. Fasting and prayer can also be part of grief. But what does David do at the end of this season of lamenting before the Lord? He washes his face. He anoints his head. He takes food from his servants. And he goes on. And I see this as a connection clearly to what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. When Jesus says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. That's what David did. He was done. He got up. He moved on. Jesus is not calling us to fast and pray in such a way that we are miserable and that we want others to be miserable with us. Why is that? Why is it that we wash our face and anoint our head? I want you to look at Psalm 67 with me. This was our call to worship. And this is very, uh, this is a common theme throughout many of 
um, the benedictions that we find in Scripture. We, we read uh, verses 24 and 25 in Jude all the time, but this is another benediction in, in the Psalm. Psalm 67, verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. If the purpose of the benediction is to ask the Lord, please, dear Lord, shine your face upon us, and we practice a sincere season of fasting and prayer, whose face are we reflecting to others? Of course, Jesus is going to tell us, wash your face, comb your hair, because if you've been in the presence of the Father, in your season of fasting and prayer, what will others see in you? I hope that you, that they will see God's face through you, that God's face will shine upon them through you. Reflect God's face through your face after praying and fasting. You see how Jesus is, is showing a very stark contrast to the hypocrites who fasted and prayed for the false reasons. There was, their purpose was not godly. But if our fasting and our prayer is a godly purpose, then God's face will shine upon us and that will also shine out to others. That's why Jesus is saying here, I think, don't go around with a gloomy face. This is God's face shining through you. Isn't that amazing? So when we're in God's presence, don't we want His glorious face upon us? So if you struggle with fasting, and I'm going to assume that every one of us in this room struggles in this area. If you struggle with fasting, uh, even if you struggle with what to fast, because fasting can also be an abstinence of other things besides food. Anything that is a, ha- a destructive habit in our lives, anything that consumes our attention and pulls us away from God, I think that is legitimate areas to fast. But if you struggle with fasting in general, I would say biblically, begin with your food intake. Begin there. But practice the self-denial slowly at first and work up to longer absences of food. If you run into a a food fast too quickly, uh, your body will shut down. Start slow. Especially if you're accustomed to eating three large meals a day, or six large meals a day, your body will shut down if you uh, go cold turkey. It's kind of like withdrawal symptoms after cigarettes or whatever, right? Go start slow. The body still needs nourishment, and fasting too much too quickly will lead to bodily harm. Now, a good way to determine what needs to be denied or to be abstained from during fasting, I think, is to begin with focus on what makes you restless, Focus on what makes you restless. What what brings you anxiety and restlessness? Oh, I've got to have it. Is it checking your phone? Are you restless and nervous because you haven't checked your phone in the last 30 seconds or five minutes? That's a good area to probably consider fasting if you're anxious about that. Or if you've got to watch your favorite Netflix show. The Crown, season four, is on Netflix right now. Do you have to get your Netflix binge? Are you nervous about that? Might be an area for God to be speaking into our lives. Amen? When you feel empty or restless in any area, what do you do to fill the emptiness or calm that anxiety? 
If you are, if you are struggling in any of those areas of nervousness, anxiety, or fear, that's probably an area that God may say, that's a good area to consider fasting and abstaining from for a season. Wouldn't hurt you. Right? This will reveal what is true in your heart. It's going to reveal what your true desires are. Whatever it is, is probably a thing that needs to be fasted. What is it that you truly desire and that tr- genuinely directs your thoughts and your actions? And is it something that you struggle with when it's absent? That's probably an area to fast, except dependence on the Lord. We are never called in Scripture to fast our dependence upon God or our time with Him. Amen? Because all these other things keep us from it. So what is it that brings you anxiety? What is it that you struggle to abstain from? Is it food? Could very well be. Food is probably a good idea for us to begin our fast as Christians. Gluttony is a sin, even in a Baptist church. Is it materialism or shopping? This week, if you've not already started, for the next six weeks, there, we are going to be bombarded with Christmas everything. Have we replaced the true nature of the birth of our Savior with being so anxious and excited and nervous about getting the perfect gift. That might be a good area this year to abstain from and fast. You know, I love you this year. I didn't buy anything, but here is a letter from my heart to you to show you how much I love you. That would be a great thing. Abstain from spending too much money. Our credit card balances, our checkbook overdrafts are probably a good area that God may be saying, you may need to abstain from some things for a little bit. Let's fast from impulse buys. Let's get off of eBay and get off of Amazon and put the computer away, put the phone away, and I promise you your checkbook balance by the end of the month might look better. That might be an area of fasting. So how did Jesus respond to fasting in Matthew chapter 4? How do we combat this? Because we could argue that if we just intentionally start fasting, if we intentionally start praying, then God will definitely hear us. But if the purpose of all this is not genuine and godly, where we depend upon God Himself, we are acting in vain. What does Jesus do when He was tempted with fasting in the wilderness? Here's what He said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. But He answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. What do we replace our cravings with? That which should be at the center to begin with. And that is God and His Word, His Son, Jesus Christ, everything of God's ways, everything of God's intent, His will. That is what we crave. That is what we desire. And when we practice fasting and prayer, God is using that gift to recenter our desires and recenter our cravings for Him and Him alone. Now, I will argue this. Now, I'll close with this point. Do not mistake the act of fasting and prayer as a substitute for the saving grace through Jesus Christ. 
Any non-believer who is trying to cause God to forgive them through fasting and prayer is just like what we read in Psalm 66 where... um, Let me go back here. Psalm 66, here's what uh, the psalmist says. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. If we have any iniquity or false purpose or desire in our heart, God will not hear it. If we are not redeemed and bought by the blood of Christ, no prayer is going to come to the Lord's ears apart from that prayer of, Dear Lord, save me. Then and only then will our prayers and fasting have spiritual significance. Prayer and fasting is not a substitute for the cross. Amen? It is the believers in Christ, those who have been purely and genuinely redeemed and renewed, those are the ones who have the right to fast and pray as God directs. So this week, as you're preparing for, it could be an exhausting week, it could be a restful week. I don't know what your week's going to look like. I do pray that you have a grand time with your family, that you have a grand time being thankful. But I think God's humor for us today is this. Gluttony and indulgence keeps us from God. As we are giving thanks to the Lord this week, is it possible of prayer and thanksgiving, prayer and fasting, for the purpose of gratitude? Is that something that God may be calling some of us to? Perhaps. And then from there, if you want to talk about how do we practice fasting regularly, I'd love to, let's let's work on that. I've been challenged as I've been preparing for the today. Amen? The problem is, and when you have a loving wife who feeds you well, and she does, it's hard to say no. Amen? That's hard. But God loves us, and He calls us to fast and pray. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You, Lord, for Your goodness. We thank You for Your Word. God, I, 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 I am so humbled that the timing of this text for today is this week. Lord, every one of us in this room have been guilty of indulging ourselves in whatever we want, whether that be food, whether that be shopping, whether that be entertainment. Whatever it is, Lord, we we replace you with too many idols. And I thank you for giving us this gift of fasting from all those things that we indulge ourselves with. Cause us, Father, I pray, to have the attitude of Your will that we would look at that impulse by or whatever it is that we are attracted to lustfully, that we would look at that with Your eyes instead of ours that we would turn from that which distracts us from you so that we turn directly to your will and your voice. Lord, I pray that this week 
and moving forward to the end of this year, that you would cause each and every one of us in this room and those who are hearing this sermon, I pray that you would cause them to have seasons and periods where they isolate themselves away from all of the attractions and the, and the those things that they are craving and they are lured to that pull them away from you. Lord, cause them to be in a place where they are dependent upon you and isolated in your presence through prayer and fasting. It's not that we're trying to win your favor. We just want to hear clearly from your, from you, Lord. Your voice speaks louder than anything else, but we drown you out with the cravings and the indulgences of our lives. So Lord, I pray that for your forgiveness for us all, but that you would inspire in us what Jesus is teaching us here, that we would come into your presence secretly, that we would just depend on you and draw our sustenance directly from your Spirit. Challenge us this week, I pray, Lord, and direct us in your paths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.